0: It was about, I would say, a little better than a decade ago, 11 or 12 years, give or take, and I had a secular job at the time, and, and there was one particular coworker that comes to memory, and at various times, many different times, the conversation would inevitably turn to faith. It would turn to my relationship with God, and and being a part of a church family and the work of the kingdom and so on and so forth. And I remember one time in particular, this, this gentleman, this young man at the time, he came and, and he joined me at my place and we were sitting there at the bar height kitchen table and we were talking about the gospel and we were talking about salvation and we were talking about repentance and being baptized and receiving the spirit of God. And as the conversation unfolded, and as we talked about moving beyond just being a believer and having faith in God, but being obedient to His Word, there was a concern that rose up within him, and I'll never forget, I don't know exactly the words or the phraseology he used, but I'll never forget the sentiment that he shared with me that night. And he said, I'm interested, I'm hungry, I have a desire, but I have... A concern that after I am obedient to this, after I repent of my sin and after I'm baptized and all of that, that I will lapse back into old ways, that that I will fail in following through with my commitment to God, to the church, and to God's people. And it seemed that no amount of of conversation and and explaining things it didn't seem to dissuade him from the sentiment he was so concerned that that he would not be able to make good on his commitment that he made to god should he be obedient to the gospel now i would just like to say that first of all i don't think that this is a unique sentiment i think that this is something that many people feel as they are feeling the tug of god's spirit on their heart that they wonder how they will fare after they take that step to be obedient and to uh, allow salvation and the blood of Calvary to cleanse them. What will life be like after? And will I be able to measure up to my commitment? You know, it's interesting. Tonight I would like to unpack a little bit the subject of God's grace. And when we talk about grace, first of all, we understand that as we as we allow the grace of God to reach way down to where we are and to pick us up and place our feet on a solid rock, that does not mean that we will not face days of struggle, and that does not mean that we won't have days where we lapse into former ways. I'm, I'm not making, giving permission for sinful behavior. And the Bible doesn't give permission for sinful behavior after we come into the church and after the blood of Calvary cleanses us. But the Bible does give provision for it. Because we're human and because we will have days where, where old habits and this old man and this flesh, it will rise up and it will grab our attention. And in a moment of weakness and, and when stress is high or whatever, we will falter. That's not me giving anybody permission. But the Scripture teaches us that, that a just man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. And the Scripture teaches us that we are to declare, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, for when I fall... It's not something that might happen. The scripture seems to indicate it will happen. When I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light unto me. And so I would like to unpack grace a little bit and unpack mercy and unpack unpack the blood that Jesus provides for our atonement and for our salvation because this is not a declaration that we will forever be perfect, but this is a declaration that despite how many times I may falter, that I am going to walk the direction of Jesus, of His kingdom. I am going to walk as often and as much as possible in lockstep with my Savior. Not a declaration of perfection, but an intention to serve God. All the days of my life. So let's talk about grace for a little bit tonight. Grace defined. It is God's unmerited favor. And the blessings that He bestows upon believers. Grace is the Hebrew word kanan. Or in the Greek, it's the word karis. And it means the state of kindness. And favor toward someone. And often with a focus on a benefit given to the object. That's how we define grace. It's God's kindness, it's His love, it's His favor, and it is unmerited. And I thank God for His grace. One of the primary ways that God favors us by His grace is through the work of salvation, it's the work of the cross. And Paul would capture the essence of this when he said in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's by grace that you are saved. We experience salvation through grace, and and it is through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we walk through the door of faith in our lives. And on the other side of that door, we encounter God's grace, and that grace brings salvation. That's how Paul describes it. And he says, it's not of yourselves. It's nothing you did, it's the gift of God. It's not of your works, verse 9. And that's lest any man should boast. So we understand tonight that nothing we could do could ever cause us to earn God's grace. Nothing we could ever do. No amount of good works, no amount of good deeds or kind gestures to our neighbor or in our community could ever earn us salvation. Hence, unmerited favor. And so grace, it is both powerful and beautiful. God has extended it toward humanity in an effort to bring us closer to himself. Regardless of our past, regardless of our sin, our addictions, our hurts, or our hang-ups, God's grace can reach us. God's grace can redeem us. God's grace can save us. And we thank God for the grace that He sends to us. Anybody thankful today for the grace of God? Can you remember where you were when God found you and what you were doing and what life was like and how He reached way down and He pulled you out of that pit and He set your feet on an established solid rock? It's only by His grace. You see, not only can God's grace save us when we first come to Him, but if I could address the sentiment that my friend had Some 11 or 12 years ago, let me tell you that God's grace can also keep you along life's journey. How many know that mistakes, as has already been alluded to, they do come sometimes. And we try to avoid the pitfalls. We try to avoid the stumbles and the trespasses and the transgressions. We try to, for sure. But John said in 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful. And He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness, from all unrighteousness. Hear me today. This is not a Scripture written to unbelievers. This is a Scripture written to the church. And He said, if you fall prey to this flesh, to the devil, or to this world, there's confession that can be made of the soul to Jesus Christ. And He is still able to cleanse us from those acts of unrighteousness and wickedness. He said in 1 John chapter 2 that yes, not sinning is the goal. Verse 1. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. That's a good goal. If that's not your goal, you should make it your goal. You should strive to not sin. But he says if anybody does sin... Again, not giving permission, but making provision. That's what the blood does. And that's what God's grace does. There's a provision for when we fall and when we falter. He said, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. And He is Jesus Christ, the only one who is truly righteous. He Himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. What an amazing gift that God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has given us. It was His grace that compelled Him to the cross of Calvary. It is His grace today that allows us to experience salvation. And by His grace, I can find mercy to not only cover my past, but mercy to keep me cleansed throughout each and every day of my life that's the grace of God. It is far-reaching and it is sufficient. See, Paul found out that God's grace was sufficient. It was enough. No sin too great, no difficulty too broad that God's grace couldn't sustain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul shares about a struggle that he is having and we don't know what it is, but he just simply calls it a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, lest Paul be exalted above measure. Again, we don't know what it is. It's left open-ended. It's, it's left ambiguous, and I, I personally believe that's intentional on the part of God so that we could relate with the apostle, so that we could find ourselves in his shoes and we could feel the struggle that he was walking through. We all have struggles. We all have bad days. Paul even prayed three times that God would remove this thorn, that He would take it from him. But God doesn't respond by removing the struggle. God doesn't respond by taking away... The thing that is causing Paul to falter. And, and maybe you've been like me sometimes and you've prayed to God and you said, God, if you would just take this from me. If you would take this appetite. If you would quell this temptation. God, if you would, if you would help me to close the door that I opened. Maybe when I was a young person, a young man, a young woman out in the world. God, that, that, that proclivity and that appetite is raging and I struggle with it, God. And I wish you'd just take it. I'd please you more. I'd be able to serve you better. I'd be able to walk more righteously before you, God. Seems like that was Paul's prayer. But God doesn't respond by removing the struggle. The only thing that God responds to Paul with is a statement about his grace. He says, Paul, I'm not looking for your perfection. I'm okay with you struggling a little bit in this journey called life. But just know this, that my grace along that journey will be sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul said, well, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. you got to understand today that God does not need our perfection. There is a provision that is available, and it's the grace of God that He sheds abroad to all of us. I'm thankful today for His grace. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for His grace. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. But how many know, and I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and, and uh, talk a little bit and unpack this from a couple different angles, but how, how many would agree with me and understand that whether you're talking about God's grace or, or sometimes even we can look outside of the kingdom perspective, and look in society, look in our world, sometimes a free provision is not appreciated the way that it should be or could be. Some people, they accept grace, while others abuse grace. How people respond to this free gift and this provision of God, it's really on a spectrum and so let, let's, let's kind of play it from the negative side of the coin for a moment. And really, this is not just something that I feel to talk about. This is something that the apostles in the New Testament, they talked about time and time again. For example, Jude, he, he is writing to the church and he says in verse 3, Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we all share. But now, I'm not going to write about that. I feel compelled by God to talk about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Verse four, I say this, watch, because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. What are these ungodly people doing? They're saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Like it's a giant permission slip, a hall pass or a blank check to do whatever our flesh might desire. And Jude said, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for, for in doing this, they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let me break it down plain for a moment and tell you that it is possible to live in such a way while, while God has extended immeasurable provision for our faltering and our struggles. It is possible still nonetheless to live in such a way that we take that reality and we presume upon the grace of God. We understand that God will always be there to pick us up when we fall. I'm not nullifying or negating that, that fact. God's grace will always be there to forgive us when we sin and restore us when we make wrong choices. But But with that reality, it is possible to abuse such a beautiful provision. This is what Jude is talking about. Jude, he then, he gives us three examples of how people who turn away from God, ultimately, they will face judgment. If the mentality is to take what God has done and then just do what we will and abuse it, judgment is at the end of that road. He says in verse 5, he said, I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. He took his people, he he pulled them out of the world, as it were, Egypt being symbolic and a type of the world. And so he brings them out of Egypt, but then later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And you need not read the story of Israel in the Old Testament and their wilderness wanderings very long before you will find when God is Executing and enacting judgment against people that 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 fall away, you, you only need to look to the rebellion of Korah and the and the murmuring of the people and the complaints of Miriam and so on and so forth. And God says, God says, I I I am yes a God of mercy and grace, and I will pull you out and put you in my family and all that. But but there are times when I will also act in in judgment. Jude says to to the New Testament church, he reminded us of. The angels, in verse 6, who did not stay within the limits of God's authority. The, the authority that God gave them. But, but they left the place where they belonged. Following after Lucifer, a third of the angels. And they tried to usurp the throne of God. And Jude said, God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness. Waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget in verse 7, the third example. Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns. Which were filled with immorality and All kinds of sexual perversion. And those cities were destroyed by fire. And they serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. And I'm not saying that God is going to strike you down in this moment. If if you are one that abuses or presumes upon the grace that God has sent our way. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that God is still a God of judgment. And while yes, He is merciful... And full of grace, as John chapter 1 says, this is not a license for us to live in immorality and sin. It isn't a blank check to give us permission to indulge our flesh. And we must never forget that it is still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jude is addressing and confronting this mentality that at this particular time has crept its way into the people of God and crept its way into the church. And so he's given these three examples. And then in verse 8, he says, in in the same way, in the same way that, that God enacted judgment against Israel and against the angels and against Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way that these three examples acted, these people, which people? People that take God's marvelous grace think it enables them to live immoral lives. These people who claim authority from their dreams, they live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. Verse 10, this is what I want to get to. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. They don't understand grace. They don't understand grace. And they act, he said, like unthinking animals. They just follow their urges. They do what their flesh tells them to do. They they do what feels right in the moment. Whatever their instincts tell them, Jude says. And in so doing, they bring about their own destruction. And so Jude felt compelled to challenge people that are on the negative end. The base end, if you will, of the grace spectrum. Those who view grace as an opportunity to carry on in the sin that God has pulled them from. Because after all, well, God will forgive us no matter what if we'll just repent. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But how we view that truth says a lot about us and our direction. Because it ends up causing destruction. You know, we can look to society and we can see so many times when when institutions or governments or or such the like, where they they will extend provisions to people, to groups. And it is in an effort to elevate people. It's in an effort to give them a boost and to be a springboard and a launching pad into something better. Often it comes in the form of financial uh, remuneration and and giving money to folks. And and, and it's an attempt to keep people above the po- poverty line and to keep them moving ahead. But but if we're honest, while yes, there are those that take advantage of these things and tuition bursaries and, and welfare programs, I'm not against any of that. And yes, some people take advantage of it and use it for good, But but we could all agree that there's also people that take this free provision that is meant to do good in someone's life and what was meant to do something good, it ends up being something that they use as an excuse to stay at a low place. Because oftentimes programs like these, they're just enough to get by, but they are not enough to thrive. And some people are content to just get by. We've probably heard stories of people that go to college and they don't really care to study or learn much. They just want to go for the experience and they want to go party and they get a free ride. Okay, maybe I'm meddling a little bit. I don't know, but... But my point is, when a free provision is extended like grace, let's bring it back to the spiritual arena, it's intended to be something that launches us into better things. Not to keep us at this low place, bound to every proclivity of our flesh. That's not what grace is for. It's not a license to live down here and just get by and and still make it to heaven. That's not the point of grace. Grace is a springboard into good works. Grace is a springboard into righteous living. It is something that leads us on into better things so that we can thrive as a man or woman of God. But obviously, this, this was an ongoing issue that many apostles felt to address because in the book of Romans, Paul, he does the same thing that Jude does. And Paul, he paints a beautiful picture of us, how, how of how God's grace is always greater than sin. We sang the song a moment ago. In Romans 5, he spends much time, he compares Adam and Jesus, the first Adam and the second Adam. He compares and he contrasts these two figures and he says many powerful things, and if you would go with me to Romans 5 for a moment, verse 15, Paul said, there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, it brought death to many. Thanks a lot. But even greater is God's wonderful grace. Everyone say grace. And his gift of forgiveness to many through this one other man, Jesus Christ and then in verse 19 you skip down I'm going to transition to King James for a moment he said for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners and so by the obedience of one Jesus many shall be made righteous moreover the law entered that the offense might abound but where sin abounded grace did much more abound you got to understand today that it doesn't matter how deep you are. It doesn't matter how far you wander from the presence of God. David said, whither shall I go from thy presence? Even if I make my bed in hell, you are there with me. I can't escape your love. I can't escape your grace. I can't go too far that you can't reach me. You'll find yourself at the bottom of the barrel. And if you will pull yourself together just enough to look down a little further, you will see that underneath are the everlasting arms there to uphold you and to reestablish your going. That's the grace of God. Paul said where sin abounded, grace always abounds in greater measure. But Paul was no dummy. (laughs) And Paul knew... There would be people that would take something as powerful and beautiful as this and take it to the worst possible logical conclusion and abuse it. And so before they could even get there, he he goes on and and you read to in, in chapter six, verse one, he says, Well, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And if you dig deep into the the Greek of the text there, you will find that Paul said, SMH, shake my head. That's a joke for those keeping score. He said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers his rhetorical question, God forbid God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And you can see the parallel. This is the same mentality that Jude confronted in his epistle. People believing that God's grace gave them license to live in immorality. And Paul said, God forbid you live with that mentality, that mindset, that I'm just going to stay low down here, I'm just going to do my thing, and God's grace has got me, no matter what I do. That's a true statement, but, but your view of that truth says a lot about you. Is it a license to do, to do things and to live at this base level, or is it a launching pad into something greater? Grace, grace is something powerful. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Grace is, grace is not a license to sin something far more powerful than that one more thing that paul said in romans chapter 6 he said in, in verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof neither yield ye ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but instead yield yourselves to god as those that are alive from the dead and yield your members as instruments of righteousness Unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. If you're not under the law, you're under grace. You're not under the law, you're under grace. But again, Paul, he just keeps on bringing this thread back up. He's no dummy. He, he understands that some are going to take this to the worst possible logical conclusion. And excuse me, Paul, you said we're under grace, not under the law. So that, that means that, that we don't need to obey the law. We don't have to obey any commands. We can do whatever we want. Is that what you're saying, Paul? Is, is is this what you're saying? And so Paul, he addresses the dummies again. It's it's odd when there's no light chuckling in the audience. You understand? Pray for me right now. You see, Paul, Paul addresses this sentiment before they even have the chance to go there and... and And he says, well, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Again, God forbid you have that mindset toward the powerful truth and the the reality of God's grace. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are. You're a slave to the things that you yield yourself to obey. You're a slave to it. You're a slave whether it's of sin unto death or Or if you are of obedience unto righteousness, you make the choice. You see, grace, we heard it on the weekend when Mark Brown was here, and he talked briefly about this, but grace is a higher standard than law. It's not a a lesser standard. It's It's not bringing us down to some base level. No, grace is higher. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said of old time, that to commit adultery That is the sin. But he said, I I tell you the truth, that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He said, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I tell you the truth, that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in your heart. Grace is a higher standard. Everyone say it's a higher standard. It's a higher standard. So Paul, again, God forbid. God forbid that we would presume. God forbid that we, would, that we would try to take advantage of this beautiful, powerful provision called grace. Grace is not just free reign for the flesh. Grace is not a crutch that we lean on in an effort to intentionally sin, hobbling along in the same old slavery That God pulled us out of. Can I tell you what grace is actually in your life? Grace is not. It's not something that automatically and magically. And by the power of God. It it makes you perfect. That's not grace. But neither is grace a crutch that we lean on to intentionally sin. Rather grace is a teacher. Grace is a teacher. Paul talks about it in Titus chapter 2. He said for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He said in verse 12, this grace, it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. To everybody that has the idea that grace is some, is some free reign of the flesh, Paul said, grace teaches us To deny ungodliness. Grace doesn't teach us to do whatever our flesh wants to do. Grace teaches us to deny worldly lusts. Grace teaches us to live soberly and to live righteously. Grace teaches us godliness. That's what grace is. It's a companion that walks with us along this life. And rather than directing us back down into the gutter that we came from, grace is supposed to help us walk from glory to glory. Grace accompanies us along this pathway called sanctification until one day God calls us up yonder. That is what grace is for. It's sufficient for every stumble. It's sufficient for every faltering and every misstep and miscue in your life. But ultimately, it is to take us forward and to take us higher. That's grace. It's our teacher. Grace is a force in our life that if we embrace it, if we cherish it, and if we understand it properly, it leads us to righteousness. If applied properly, grace helps us grow in the things of God. And so, yes, some misunderstand and some abuse it and they fall into more sinful slavery. But we are challenged to appreciate and apply it and grow into righteousness and freedom. And so, yes, Paul does say that we're saved by grace through faith. Absolutely. He does say in Ephesians 2, we've already read it, he does say that it's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. He does say it's not of works. Because there's nothing we could do to merit grace, lest any man should boast. But please watch what grace will do, and we find it in verse 10. It's through the grace of God that brings salvation through our faith, not of our works. It's the gift of God, not of ourselves. All that's true. But in verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so yes, works don't earn us God's grace and they don't earn us salvation, but God's grace should lead us into good works. God's grace ought to lead us into righteous living because it's our teacher and it's our companion in this life. In other words, if we don't see righteousness If you've been living for God for a a long time, again, I'm not saying you're perfect overnight. I'm not saying that that you're ever going to be perfect. We're only ever in the process of perfection. Striving. Striving to do better and to live right and to live holy. Striving for sanctification. But if we don't ever see any progress, if we don't ever see any good works or any evidence or fruit after we experience salvation... If we instead just see the same life that we once were living, but now we feel we have permission to live it and still go to heaven. If that's what we see, perhaps you don't fully understand grace. Grace is meant to be your launching pad into liberty. Grace is meant to be your springboard into freedom. That's what grace is for. That's what grace is for. I'm coming in for a close, so I'll, I'll get Kathy, if you would, maybe come back and join me. People that suggest that works don't earn grace and earn salvation, they're right. They're right to suggest so. But I would just challenge the idea a little bit and say, don't leave, gra- don't leave works... Out of the equation altogether, yeah, it doesn't come on the fore end or the, the front end of it, but good works come at the back end of it, as grace does its work in us. So I, I know, probably for the most part, I'm preaching to the choir, as it were, and I understand that, to some, this may seem elementary, but, but I think it's important that we view grace from a biblical context and through the biblical lens. Grace is not a license to sin, of course. If Jude had to address it, if Paul had to address it, if the apostles had to address it, you know, not much changes. We're all human, and human nature doesn't change very much. And so so let me just echo that same sentiment of the apostles from the first century. We We don't have a license to To sin. That's not grace. Grace is our teacher of righteousness. You know, I'll I'll, I'll close this way. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we do have this companion to walk along with us. You know, a good teacher. I come from a, a long line of teachers. My grandfather was a teacher, my sister has an education degree, my aunt is a teacher. My grandfather ended up being a principal for many years of his life. So I come from a long line of teachers, but a good teacher, they don't, they don't throw you out when you do wrong. They don't kick you to the curb. They don't send you away. But a good teacher, they encourage you. They pick you back up, and they give you a course correction and let you keep on trucking. That's a good teacher. That's grace. I'm thankful for that today. I'm thankful that I don't have to live according to my basest human flesh, fleshly carnal instincts. Grace has taught me to grow beyond a lot of those things, and I thank God for that. But I pose this question to you in closing. I've posed it to our students in the past. When I was serving as youth pastor, But the question is, why, why, as we live for God, if grace is always there to catch us, if mercy is always there to cleanse us, if the blood is always there to wash us clean when we falter, why why do we even need to bother putting the effort forward to try to not sin? Maybe that seems like a, a silly question, but I think it's a question people ask sometimes. Why bother not sinning? Let me give you a few scriptures to consider as we close. Here's a reason why we should listen to the teacher grace in our lives. First of all, it's because we become bound by the sins we commit and the appetites we indulge. We literally, we've already touched on this, but we become a slave. A slave when we don't listen to our teacher. When we skip class. We jig class. Is that a New Brunswick thing? Is that I I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make sense to somebody watching from somewhere else. When we don't listen to the teacher and we just go on and just carry on in our, our sin, we become bound. We become a slave to the sins we commit. Jesus said in John chapter eight, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. That's a good reason to listen to the teacher of grace. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 5:22, "An evil man is held captive by his own sins, and they are ropes that catch and hold him." Paul said in Romans chapter 6, we already read it, but let me reiterate. He said, "Don't you understand that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are; to whom you obey you become a slave." Whether in sin Unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So that's a pretty good reason because we become a slave to the appetites we indulge. But perhaps even more important, of a reason to listen to grace, the teacher in our lives. When we strive to live unto good works, to live righteously before God, We are positioning ourselves for kingdom use and kingdom service. That's why. When we don't listen to the teacher, we are are not positioning ourselves to be used by God. And and how important it is, certainly in this end time hour, to have people positioned properly to be used by God in His kingdom. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready. I want to be ready. He said, you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Paul would say also in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, he said, therefore I, and this is where I'll close tonight, a prisoner for serving the Lord. I am beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. I'm thankful today for the grace of God. And I'm thankful that it teaches us and walks with us and covers us when we falter and establishes our footing once again. And I want to listen to that teacher in my life. Because I don't want to carry on in slavery, the very thing God pulled me out of. And I want to be ready for the hand of the master to find my life and employ me in kingdom service. That's why it's important. and That's why we need God's grace. I wonder if you're thankful for what God has done in your life. Maybe it's been a few days or a few decades since God has reached into your life and turned it around by His grace. But I wonder if you could pause right now and in appreciation and with thanksgiving, I wonder if you could just begin to pray and if you could thank God for how He's done that for you and for your family. Lord Jesus, God, thank You for the opportunity that we've had tonight. Thank You for allowing us to look into Your Word. God, without fear, I understand that we're not in a typical setting tonight, but I do believe that you're with us. And I'm thankful for that, God. I'm so thankful that you reached into my family tree when you did. I'm thankful that you've brought me to this place. God, I'm thankful that in moments of weakness in my life, you don't kick me to the curb and you don't put me out in the cold, but God, Your grace, it is sufficient for me. Your grace, it cleanses and covers me because it's always greater than any sin that I might find myself in. I thank You for that, God. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for allowing the things of this world to grow strangely dim as I listen to Your voice and and as I listen to this teacher in my life. Thank You for, for taking me on into good works and into greater things and righteous living and thank you Jesus for sanctification that takes place over sometimes days weeks years God thank you that you're not done working on me I I'm thankful for that God and Lord Jesus I pray that somebody that maybe tonight you've never experienced that God maybe they've had that same fear and that same sentiment as my friend many years ago I don't know if I if I can follow through and come good on my commitment to serve God, if I take that step, God, I pray that You'd give them a revelation of what grace is for. That's what grace is for. It's for those moments when we falter. And I pray, God, that there be a boldness to be obedient to Your Word and obey the Gospel, to turn in repentance. God, to experience remission in the waters of baptism, the cleansing of sin. And God, I pray You'd fill them with Your Spirit. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I wonder if you can just give God a little bit of praise wherever you are. If you can just thank Him for the work of grace in your life. For the mercy of God that has reached way down and turned your life around. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you, Lord. I worship you, God. Lord, there's no one like you. God, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, God. We might as well sing it one time before we dismiss tonight. Can you join us? Sing grace, grace.